Well, today is Mother's Day, and I think of it very uh, similarly to Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving is our opportunity to give thanks to God in general. Today is our opportunity to give thanks to God for mothers in particular. And mothers are an amazing uh, thing to behold. If, if you doubt that, let me give you some statistics. A mother will change 7,300 diapers by the baby's second birthday. Her diaper changing speed, on average, is two minutes and five seconds. That adds up to three 40-hour work weeks each year just in diaper changing. Now, I have no idea who did this, but someone calculated a father's changing time as well. And it was one minute and 36 seconds compared to the 205. And before you men think that's awesome, we won. Think about what that is saying. We don't take as much care as the mothers do. And if you ever doubt that, if I just ask you the question, have you ever changed a baby after a dad did the work, right? I mean, you can tell who, who changed and who didn't. A child prior to kindergarten requires a mom's attention every four minutes, which is 210 times a day. The average mother will will wash 330 loads of laundry, which is 5,300 articles of clothing each year. And you mothers are sitting there saying, tell me about it. I know this firsthand. Well, don't lose heart. You could always be Carmelina Fideli, the Italian mother who set the record for giving birth to the largest baby in 1955, a boy weighing 22 pounds and 8 ounces. It always could be worse, ladies. I guess so. Now, if you couple all of those statistics with the fact that there are over four babies... Born each second, there's a lot of work that's going on. And what God is going to help us see this morning is that's a lot of opportunity as, as well. And I think it's a no-brainer that, that motherhood is important. But, but honestly, ladies, as I've observed, I'm not a mother, but I've observed plenty of mothers, not only my own, but, but my wife. When you're in the middle of it, it's, it's easy to lose track of how important it really is. Somewhere between the diapers and the trip to, trip to travel league or arguing over texting at dinner, it's easy to lose sight of how valuable the work is for the kingdom. And I want you to open your Bibles this morning to 1 Timothy chapter 2. And we're going to look at, at an often misread or sometimes confusing passage that reveals the the greatest privilege of motherhood, something that God has built into creation. And it's about, it's about redemption. Now, we're going to wade through this passage, but really the punchline is going to come at the very, the very end. So there's a long introduction, but I think it's going to be worth the wait because it's a story about redemption. And I like stories about redemption, stories where somebody fails miserably, um, they're totally without hope, there's no way to save themselves, and then something happens, someone comes along, and they are, they're redeemed. 
And I think we like those stories because we see our own lives in them. At least I do. And there's a story of redemption embedded in this passage in 1 Timothy. And you could say it's a story of potential redemption because it puts that little word in there, if. It's a little word, if, and that leads us to see how there's potential in this passage. It can be obeyed or it can also be disobeyed. And it's all about mothers. It's a story of redemption that God has built into the redeemed life and it provides you mothers a massive, massive privilege. Now, it may be a familiar passage as you heard Clay read it, and at first glance it may seem like an odd text to encourage you about motherhood, but I think you're going to see exactly why I've chosen it this morning. So 1 Timothy chapter 2, and we're going to focus on the, the ladies part in verses 9 through the end of verse 15, even though Clay read the whole thing for context. Now, if you recall, it's been a while since we've been in 1 Timothy, but if you recall... This is written to Timothy, who's at the church of Ephesus, a very significant church. And yet that church is struggling greatly. There was false doctrine there, there's disarray in the worship, there's problems with leadership, and there's the need for qualified elders and deacons. And so we get from 1 Timothy the qualifications for those who lead the church, the qualifications for those who serve the church, and Paul writes all of this in a letter to, to Timothy, who is shepherding the church through these thorny areas. And God's instructions on one of the problems begins in verse 9. Look, if you would, at verse, time, verse 9. It says, likewise, I want the, the women. Now, it says likewise, meaning there's something before. And, and we find what's before in verse 8. Therefore, I want the men in every place, to do these certain things. In verse 9, likewise, I want the women in the church to do these other things that Paul is going to, going to describe. While men were being passive and failing to engage in evangelistic prayer, there was a problem also with the women in the church. Not all of the women, but some of the women. Enough that Paul needs to address it to, to Timothy the pastor and therefore the whole, the whole congregation. And so God addresses it in verse 9. Likewise, I want the women to adorn themselves with proper clothing, modestly and discreetly, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or costly garments. And watch the contrast. Not this, but rather by means of good works, as is proper for Christians, as is proper for Women making the claim, making a claim to, to godliness. They made a claim to godliness. They made a claim to be believers. And so, this is what that would look like in their, in their, their lives. Now, the word for modest or, or proper here is where we get our term for cosmetics. It's the same word that's used for the, for the world, the cosmos. It's, it, it's a root that, that means to properly arrange, like the cosmos is, is the, we talk about the, you know, the, the cosmic world. It, it's arranged in a certain way. Cosmetics is you arrange your face, if you will. Well, this word means to properly arrange your dress, to be well ordered in, in the way that, that you come to, to church. And I've never forgotten, at least up to this point, uh, Dr. MacArthur 
telling the story about the, the late Dr. E.V. Hill, the great African-American pastor from Mount Zion Missionary Baptist Church in Los Angeles, who on one Sunday morning, one of his members, one of his lady members, walked into the church scantily clad in the middle of the announcements, and right in the middle of the announcements, E.V. stopped and said to the lady, Sister, you can't come in here dressed like that. You need to go home and put some clothes on and then come back. And, of course, all of the church was just absolutely silent. Now, obviously, there's some cultural differences about 30 years. I've never done anything like that. And there's probably some cultural differences in an African-American church than maybe in, in the South. But what's even more amazing, more shocking, is the lady changed and then she came back. And Evie stopped in the middle of the sermon when she came back and said, Now, sister, you look good. And he went on with the, with the service. This passage clearly includes modesty, but it's much more than that. Way more than just, than just modesty. Paul, in, in Paul's day, women wore their status in their clothing. And also in their hair. You've probably heard this before, but if you haven't, women often during this time braided bits of gold into their hair and shells and pearls. And, and it was a way to be ostentatious. It was a way to flaunt their, their wealth and their beauty. It also communicated social status. Nothing's changed in 2,000 years. You, you want to wear, if you're in high school, you want to wear the right kind of designer clothes. If you have the little patch, whatever the, whatever the famous patch is, that's what everybody wants to wear. It was similar there. But by doing so, these ladies were coming to church at Ephesus. Ephesus is a very wealthy city. They're drawing attention to themselves rather than the Lord. And they're leading others to be envious. They're a distraction in the worship service. You might think of like the Met Gala, whenever you read this verse. Everyone trying to outdo the other in fashion. And the underlying problem is the church is not a place to be noticed. If you come to church and no one notices how you dress, you have been victorious. I mean, that's the goal. The goal is not for when you come to church, people to notice how poorly you're dressed or how overly dressed you are. If I walked in this morning with a big overcoat and toboggan and, and hat and gloves, you would say, well, what's wrong with that guy? But if I came in this morning in a pair of shorts and flip-flops and a t-shirt, not that there's anything sinful about any of those, you might say, what's wrong with that guy? The point is when you come to church, you're not to be a distraction. And that's what Paul and God is trying to to deal with here in the in the church. It's a place to notice God, not to be noticed yourselves. And these women were doing that on purpose. This verse doesn't mean some of the more bizarre interpretations that women can't wear makeup or fashionable clothing or any of that other nonsense. That would have the same effect of drawing attention. Paul says, come culturally proper, well-ordered, so attention can be directed to Christ. And if you draw any attention, let it be to the work of God in you. Look at you at verse 10. After he says, I want them to do this, not this, this is the, the contrast, verse 10. But rather, by means of good works, as is proper 
for women making a claim to go. If you want to be noticed in the church, be noticed for your good works. That's what Paul says. Paul says women who have committed themselves to the Lord should complement that truth with their demeanor, with their behavior, and that will draw attention to the Lord and not themselves. Look at the second problem that Paul addresses here. This is all introduction. We'll get to the message in just a minute. But if you don't see this, you'll not understand the punchline. The second problem Paul addresses is found in verse 11, where some women in the church were seeking a dominant role in leadership and in teaching. Verse 11, A woman must quietly receive instruction with entire submissiveness. But I do not allow a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man, but remain quiet. Now, there's a lot of bizarre interpretations with this passage as well. But I think it's very plain if you just let the text say what it says. Very plain what it means. There were women who were seeking to be public teachers in the church assembly. And Paul corrects them. He says that's not part of God's design. There's some of the misapplications. Women are not to talk in the church. They're, they're not allowed to do any number of things. But Paul focuses specifically here on the position of official teachers, of elders in the, in the church. And these two verses, verse 11 and 12, verses 11 and 12, they explain one another. Let me show you. Paul says... Let the women learn. That's the positive command in verse 11. Or in the American Standard, says a woman must receive instruction. He says how they're to receive it, quietly. A woman must receive instruction. Or some of your translations put it more directly, and I think rightly so. Let the women learn. It's a, it's a command given to the church. And they're to do that with submissiveness. It describes how they're to do that in the church. They're to learn. That's the command, but they're to do that with submissiveness. So what does Paul mean by submissiveness? Then in verse 12, he gives more information. Look at verse 12. He explains what he means. But I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. That's what they're not allowed to do. They're commanded to learn, but this is what they're not supposed to do. They're not supposed to be an official teacher in the church or exercise authority over a man, but remain quiet. And so, again, he explains what he means. Now, the focus here is not on their silence. The focus is on their instruction. That's the point. Let the women learn. They're not to be official teachers. They're to be learners in the church meaning they're to be silent because there were women in the church that weren't doing that. These are compliments. They're to be learners, not official teachers. And the women that want to teach should be silent and learn. Women in Judaism were not encouraged to learn. They weren't discouraged. They had a place in the synagogue, but they weren't encouraged. The same thing in in, in Ephesus. And so Paul says it's not to be that way in the church. Paul says, teach women the ways of Christ in the same way that you do men. They're able to learn just like a man, sometimes better than us, I, I believe. And in the church, they're primarily to be learners, not public teachers, to the entire congregation. And the restriction here is specific to, to the public official teacher in the church. It doesn't mean that women can't teach at all. 
It doesn't mean that they can't direct certain ministries the church has, but it would not violate the order of, of creation, and it surely wouldn't put them in a position like I'm standing this morning, where they are tugging on the conscience of others based upon the authority of the Word of God. That's expressly prohibited, not only here, but in several other places in the Bible. It means that they're not to desire the position of an elder or public teaching roles, and they're forbidden to exercise authority over men in the church assembly. In the church assembly. It doesn't mean that they can't lead in the public sphere. This is specific in the family and in the church assembly. And that's what he reinforces in verse 12. Silent, meaning not teaching, with all subjection and submissiveness, means not trying to take a position of authority over the, over the elders. And he goes on to tell us why. And it's within these verses that we find the story of redemption. All that was introduction, all right? Look at verse 13. Paul's reasoning for letting women learn in the church and not being elders is found in verses 13 and 15. And it's there you find the greatest privilege of motherhood. Paul gives two reasons, if you're a mother this morning, to rejoice in motherhood. Or I could say, if you're not a mother, because this is rooted in, in creation. There's God's perfect design in creation verses 13 and 14, and then there's God's great privilege found in motherhood. Let's look at the, the first one, the first reason. God's perfect design is rooted in creation, not the fall. Look at verse 13. He's giving the reason for His command. Verse 13. For it was Adam who was first created... And then, and then Eve. For, the little word for begins his explanation. For Adam was, and notice the time references, first created, and then, another time reference, Eve. So Paul points back to creation and the order of, of God's designs. Regardless of what culture does, regardless of, of what you like or I like, this is clearly what it says. It's rooted in creation. And as Christians, we rejoice in in God's creation and the distinctions He's made between genders because it's theological. That's what Paul's saying here. It's theological. It's not cultural. Jesus does the same thing when He has questions from the Sadducees concerning divorce. Look at how Jesus does the same thing that Paul does here. He appeals back to the creation, the creation order. Matthew 19, 4 through 6. He's answering the Sadducees, can you divorce for any reason? And he answered and said, have you not read that he who created them, watch this, from the beginning, made them male and female. That's before the fall. That's in creation. He said, for this cause a man shall leave his father and mother and shall cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Consequently, they are no longer two, but one flesh. What God... Therefore, has joined together, let no man separate. You probably hear that in, in all kinds of weddings, because that's what God says in Genesis chapter 3. And He's the one that created men and women and created them different and created marriage. Now, just a little side note, I want you to notice that Jesus right here affirms a literal Adam and a literal Eve. <laughs> you notice that? I mean, that's not some, 
mythology. And just as a side note, Jesus also believed in the, in the global flood. Matthew 24, the Olivet Discourse. For the coming of the Son of Man, Jesus says, will be just like the days of Noah. For as in those days they, before the flood, they were eating and drinking, they were marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark. Jesus also believed in a global flood and believed in Noah. So if you don't believe in creation or, or you want to explain that away the Bible, then you might as well chuck the whole thing because, because the Lord Himself says, that these things took place. One of the common deceptions liberalism pushes today is that that what Paul mentions here happened as a result of the fall. But that's not what this passage says. Many feminists point to Genesis 3 and say, this is the beginning of equality, inequality, the fall. Men ruling over women is what Jesus came to undo. So Jesus is this great savior of social engineering. And yet, that's not what this passage says at all. Look at it again. For it was Adam who was first created, then then Eve. And the Bible doesn't teach that men rule over men. I don't rule over you, per se. My only authority is the Scriptures, just like a husband's. They lead as fellow heirs of the grace of life. They love with understanding. But what Scripture does teach clearly roles in the family and in the church which were part of God's original design, not a result of the fall. Watch how Paul establishes the order of creation. For it was Adam who was first created, then Eve. And then watch how he moves to the fall in verse 14. How do I know this? Well, it's right here. And it was the woman being deceived who fell into transgression. So there's creation order, Adam, then Eve, then the fall. It's plain as day right here on the pages of, of Scripture. Now, when you hear that, you might be tempted to, to think that, that somehow that is being harsh on... Uh, it's emphasizing how bad the woman's sin is. But, but that's not the point. It was bad, but that's not the point Paul's trying to make. He's distinguishing her role from Adam. He mentions Adam, and then he mentions Eve, and then he mentions what Eve does in relation to the creation, the created order. He's distinguishing her role in the fall from Adam. It was not Adam who was deceived, but the woman being deceived, the role in the fall. Which is why they should not be in a position to teach a ruling in the church, which is Paul's whole point. But it also sets up what he's going to say next. He's saying what Eve did and the results of the fall actually demonstrates God's wisdom in His design. It was Eve who was deceived. When she violated God's design, assumed leadership over her husband, she was deceived. That's what Paul said. And plunged the whole human race into sin. So, no matter how bad you want to feel about Eve, and I'm no better than Eve, obviously, It was bad, it was really bad, but think of the contrary point that Paul's making here. Eve was deceived, meaning that Adam was not. Which means he disobeyed willfully and knowingly. If you would, at Genesis chapter 3, verse 6, it says, "...when the woman saw the tree was good for food..." and that it was a delight to the eyes, and the tree was desirable to make one wise. 
she took from his fruit and ate. And she gave also to her husband, watch this, who was with her. And he ate. Don't get the idea that it was like Adam was over here in the next orchard, obediently tending to the garden, doing exactly what God commanded him to do, and his evil woman was over here being led astray. That's, that's not what Genesis says at all. Adam was with Eve, with the serpent. And the implication is he watched her. Listen, be deceived, take the fruit and eat it, and he did nothing. It's like your parents, when your parents told you don't touch the electric fence and you let your little brother touch it, watching to see what's going to happen. I mean, that's kind of the idea here. God said don't eat the tree. I wonder, wonder what's going to happen. But now here's the exciting part. Just as God gives the opportunity to men to recover what they did in the fall, recover the glory that they lost in the fall by imitating Christ and His church in marriage, by loving and leading their wives, because what did Adam do? He failed to love his wife and he failed to lead his wife. So in marriage, God in the Christian marriage, God gives, gives men the opportunity to, to restore that glory by doing that properly. God also has given women the opportunity to remove the stigma of Eve's deception through motherhood. Look, if you would, at verse 15. Here is God's great privilege that's revealed in motherhood. Its perfection is rooted in creation its privilege is revealed through motherhood. This verse describes the greatest privilege of motherhood. The privilege is not just bearing children, although that's a privilege. Some people long to do that and can't. The privilege is undoing the work of Eve through passing on the faith. Look at verse 15. It was Adam who was not deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. Watch this contrast. But women will be preserved through the bearing of children if, there's your little potential word, if they continue in faith and love and sanctity with self-restraint. God's not diminished the design after the fall. He stressed it in order to recover what was lost. Lost to, to men that follow after Adam in marriage, to loving, to love and lead, and here for women in motherhood, those that are called to it. Now watch what Paul does in this verse. He changes from speaking about Eve to speaking to all women after her. Look at verse 15. But women, or some of your translations may she, say she, but she will be preserved through the bearing of children. And watch this plural. If they, Continue in the faith. Do you see that? He changes from speaking about Eve, who fell in the transgression, to all women. It says, if they continue. And notice this is after the fall. Some of your translations may say women. Some may say she will be saved. But the verb is plural, which is why you have the they. There's, not, there's obviously not multiple Eves. So this can't be talking about Eve alone. But Eve will be preserved through the bearing of children. 
if they, multiple Eves, continue in the faith. Well, there's not multiple Eves. There's, and in the original, there's, there's a plural. He moves from Eve talking to all women. And I want you to notice that it says women will be saved through or in childbearing, not by childbearing. It's obvious that Paul's not saying that you get into heaven if you're, if you're a woman by having babies, because that would contradict the Bible in plenty of other places. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, Christ alone. Remember uh, another MacArthur story going to the former Soviet Union and preaching this verse and He's being translated, and he, he noticed several women were looking upset, and the men were very troubled that were sitting on the pews. And, and he found out later that the pastor had been telling the women that that's what this verse meant, that they would be saved if they bore, if they bore children. And the women with a pew full of, of kids were not too happy about that verse being misapplied. So what does it mean? It says saved. Some say this is a reference to... Uh, to, to the promise that God makes in Genesis 3, in the curse, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. To the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth, and in pain you'll bring forth children, yet you des your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. So here you have this promise, this, this early gospel, that, that there's going to come a, a child from the seed of the woman that's going to undo what Satan did. And then there's going to be a curse. There's Genesis references childbearing. So maybe that's what this verse is, is talking about. A woman, Mary in particular, bears Christ. And when he is born, he undoes the curse by Eve. And while that's true... The problem is that this verse doesn't mention Mary anywhere. And she's only one woman, and this verse says they. It's plural, so it can't mean that. So what does it mean? Well, the word saved means to be delivered from or to be preserved. And when you put it in the context, I think it's very clear what Paul's saying. He's correcting women in the church who are going outside of God's design, following after what happened before the fall. And he's calling Christian women to faithfulness. And he's showing them the privilege to do that. He starts with creation's order. Adam first, then Eve. Then to the effects of the fall when it's misapplied. Eve was deceived, fell into transgression. And now he moves to how God gives women the privilege to be part of undoing that. As Eve bore the stigma of the one who led the human race into sin through Christ, they, her sisters can raise a godly generation of children and be delivered from that. Single women give themselves to serving in the church, according to 1 Corinthians 7, and mothers give themselves to raising godly children who follow after the Lord and can, by that, recover the glory that was lost in the first woman's deception. You see the connection, right? Eve was influenced unto ungodliness, but now she has the opportunity to influence her children toward godliness. The devil deceived her, and women after her can lead others in the truth, not in error. Now think about it. A woman chose to disobey God, and her children suffered. And in redemption, God chooses a woman to bear Christ, and now by following Him, 
mothers can be part of that redemption that He brings. And childbearing in pain was part of the curse for Eve's sin, and child-rearing in faith is the way that God gives a mother the privilege to do the opposite of Eve. You know how important motherhood is? It's not just biological, it's theological. It's redemptive. It's part of the way that God has designed to undo the curse on the earth. It's not possible outside of Jesus Christ, but those who are in Jesus Christ get an opportunity to undo what sin has brought in the world. And that's exactly why you see the devil designing feminism and other things to try to undo that. God says it's so important He designed it to reverse the shame of the curse. And you know what? Timothy knows this very, very well, doesn't he? Remember who Paul's writing to? He's writing to Timothy. And Timothy knows what a godly mother does. Paul says to Timothy, For I am mindful of the sincere faith within you. Well, how did it get in him? Which first dwelt in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and I am sure that is in you as well. How did it get in him? His mother. Look at what he says in 2 Timothy 3. And what it did once it got in him. But as for you, continue in the things that you have learned and firmly believe since you know from whom you have learned and that from childhood you have known the sacred writings which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. Timothy had a mother and she had a mother before her. And they were daughters of Eve who had fallen. And they were under the curse, but they'd received Christ. And after that, they continued in faith and they taught it to Timothy. And that's exactly what Timothy now gets to communicate to the mothers at Ephesus and to all the mothers since then. All the power that God has given to mothers. Even the world understands that. You've heard the statement, the hand that rocks the crater rules the world. Mothers spend far more time with their children so they have greater influence. Men don't carry them for nine months. They can't nurse them or create the bond that's in a mother's heart from the pain of childbirth or the joy that follows. What a privilege. But here's the if. Look at verse 15 again. But women will be delivered from the stigma of Eve through the bearing of children if if they continue in faith and love and sanctity and and discretion or self-restraint. Only a mother who knows the Lord and who walks after Him can exercise this privilege. Here's the potential. God recognizes the power of motherhood and says, if you use this ministry of motherhood, you can glorify God after the fall through your influence. And the if is both a promise and also a warning, ladies. If you continue pursuing Christ, you can do great work in the kingdom. But if you don't, your children can follow in your footsteps. 
So rejoice. Church, rejoice in godly mothers today. They're praiseworthy. And mothers, rejoice in God's beautiful design and continue in the faith, in love, in sanctity, and self-restraint. There is no greater influence or power or position than a godly mother who fulfills her calling by the grace of God. Let's pray. There are many lies in the world today. And Satan doesn't care which one you believe as long as it keeps you from living for Christ. But one of the greatest is getting you to believe that motherhood is unimportant. Don't buy it. Follow Christ and you'll find your reward. You say, is this a guarantee that if I do everything I'm supposed to do as a mother that my children are going to be saved and follow Jesus? No. Because as we've said before in Isaiah chapter 1, God describes Himself as a parent and He says His children are rebellious. And God obviously did that perfectly and that didn't guarantee Israel, all of Israel following after the Lord. You can do everything right and that's not going to automatically convert into the conversion of your children. But you know what it will? It'll convert into... Praise from the Father. See, we don't obey for results. We obey because we love the Lord. If you love me, keep my commandments. And I can promise you that you'll have a lot better opportunity leading them in in godliness than if you go the way of Eve. Father, we love you. We thank you for your clear word. We thank you that even in times when this, this sounds controversial because of all of the voices around us. It's not. It's beautiful. It's perfect. Because you're the creator and you've ordered everything rightly. And, and it's not a punishment. It's a privilege. You've rooted this in, in the way you've designed life for blessing. And we thank you for that. Father, I pray for mothers today that they would be honored, we would give thanks for them. I give you thanks, Lord, for my godly mother who was on her knees praying for me this morning and for the people that would hear this message. I give you thanks for my wife who's a godly mother to my children. I give you thanks, Lord, for the mothers here this morning that may have gone astray, that may not know Jesus, that if they'll repent and believe, they can be saved. And ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Just stand. Let's sing, O Great God of Highest Heaven. We have a prayer room right over here. If you don't know the Lord, someone would be happy to pray with you. If you have a burden on your heart, we'd love to do that. Let's sing. O Great God of Highest Heaven.
Amen, amen. Happy Mother's Day, ladies. Don't forget, tonight we'll be not be in this building, we'll be in the other. We'll be in the book of Revelation again. We're going to be looking at the millennial kingdom uh, when all rights are going to be made wrong for a thousand years. And uh, it's, a, it's a powerful passage. We'll be covering verses 4 through 6 at least. We covered verses 1 through 3 in chapter 20 last time if you want to, to read ahead. So, the Lord bless you. I have no idea what time it is. My clock is dead. So, if I'm early, rejoice. I am? Yeah. Well, look, maybe you should just keep the batteries out of it. Is that what you're saying? So maybe the Lord maybe the Lord wanted the mothers to get a you know, to get an extra extra hamburgers up. I don't know. <laughs>